There's something I want to tell you before we begin with verse 1. We've been studying through the Gospel of John. As I look at my notes, this is our 43rd study through the Gospel. And I feel like we've been moving fairly fast. I mean, we could go much slower than we have been. And it's necessary. You, you, you don't want to blaze through and just, you know, summarize everything and, and all that. But, but there's a, a, a bad part to going piece by piece through the gospel. Sometimes you kind of forget the whole bigger flow and context. This is just what I simply want to say about that. Is please understand that all throughout this gospel, John has taken great care to present Jesus to us as God. So when we come to chapter 19 and see Jesus on trial before Pontius Pilate, have it in the forefront of your mind. This is God standing before Pontius Pilate. We're going to see Jesus in his weakness, in his humility. Oh, not that there's no strength about him. There certainly is. But, but this is the humbled, bowed down Jesus. Do not forget for a moment that throughout the Gospel of John, he has shown us this is God standing before Pontius Pilate. And then just immediately in the context, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, has an accused prisoner before him, and Pilate knows that the accused man is innocent. He knows it. There's no question in his mind. Yet there are political pressures on him to send an an innocent man to execution. That's kind of the backstory as we come to verse 1. Now, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. The first thing we see when we look at verse 1, if we understand it, it hits us, it shocks us. It says, so, notice there in verse 1, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Please understand, previously we saw this in verse 38 of John chapter 18, that Pilate declared, I find no fault in this man. Pilate knew that he was innocent. Yet what did he do? He commanded that Jesus be scourged. The motivation here seems to be that Pilate wanted to punish Jesus, not only perhaps as a preparation for crucifixion, which was commonly done, but he wanted to punish Jesus hoping that that would satisfy the crowd. Maybe I don't have to send him to the cross. Maybe they would look and be horrified at the fact that a good, honest, innocent man has been horribly tortured and mistreated by the scourging And that's enough. Okay, Pilate, that's enough. You've harmed enough. You don't have to send to the cross. That seems to be Pilate's hope here in these first few verses of John chapter 19. So they scourged him. Most commonly, a Roman scourging would come from a whip that was made up of a handle. And then attached to the handle would be several leather straps or thongs. And embedded at the end of those leather straps or thongs would be little pieces of bone or metal And what they would do is they would hit the prisoner with it on the back as the prisoner was tied to a column with his back exposed. And they would let the the embedded pieces of bone or metal or whatever it was drag a little bit down the prisoner's back. It, It reduced the prisoner's back to strips of flesh. William Barclay says this, 
It literally tore a man's back into strips. Few remained conscious through the ordeal. Some died and some went raving mad. You know what's remarkable about this in the Gospels? Just taking from an outside look here. John or none of the Gospel writers go into this with intimate description. They're not trying to play on our emotions. If John wanted to spin this up as a great big emotional um, manipulative tale here. He really would have gone into detail, detail. But he doesn't. He just lays it out. They scourged him. Now notice this. Verse 2. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe. Look, it wasn't enough to just physically torture this innocent man, Jesus of Nazareth. Then... Venting all their madness, they had to humiliate him. Verse 3 says that they started crying out, Hail, King of the Jews. All of this was calculated to humiliate Jesus. You see, earlier the Jewish leaders had already mocked Jesus as the Messiah. Now the Roman leaders mock him as king. So they take this man who's been beaten within an inch of his life, They take, notice the words there in verse 2, a crown of thorns. Kings wear crowns, don't they? But they don't wear crowns of torture. But that's what this was. A crown with long, strong, thick spikes in the form of thorns pressed down upon his head. Then they threw over his shoulders a, a tattered purple robe. Kings wear purple. It was the royal color back then. But, but they don't put it on backs that have been ripped open by a brutal beating. Then what did they do? Verse 3 says that they started calling out, Hail, King of the Jews. You greet a king with a royal title, don't you? In England today, they say, God save the queen. There's a royal title that you greet the king with. So they start saying, mocking, sneering, Hail, King of the Jews. And they're doing that not only to mock Jesus, but to mock the Jewish people. The idea is something like this. You Jews, this is the best king you can come up with? This is your king. Ha, ha, ha. Then it says in verse 3 that the soldiers also struck him with their hands. They beat him. They mocked him simply to gratify their cruelty and wickedness. This had nothing to do with the administration of justice. This had nothing to do with dealing with a criminal. This had nothing to do with anything legal. This was pure hatred of man towards God being vented. Matter of fact, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus was also stripped and they put a reed as a mocking royal scepter and that the soldiers went and bowed their knee before Jesus. They offered mocking respect towards him and then they spat on Jesus again and again. Let me bring out a little contrast here. There's something amazing about Men and women, we are made in the image of God. And God is a creator. We understand that, don't we? God is the creator and he is a creator. You want to see the creative brilliance of God? You know, watch one of those cable channels that deal with animals and nature. You'll just be blown away, won't you? God, your creative majesty is amazing. 
Now, because men and women are made in the image of God, we have something of his creative ability. We can be very creative. Do you see the creative power of man put here now to devising new and terrible ways to mock and torture an innocent man? It's horrible. But if the soldiers used creative power to think of ways to further mock and humiliate Jesus, should not we, his people, use our creative powers to think of new and wonderful ways to bring him praise and honor? If he's going to be mocked like that in some places, then let him be all the more praised among his people. Now going on, Pilate says in verse 4, that you may know that I find no fault in him. He's repeating the statement he made in chapter 18 at verse 38, declaring that Jesus was innocent of any wrongdoing. As a judge, Pilate had both the reason and he had the responsibility to set Jesus free with no punishment instead of continuing the trial in any way whatsoever. Friends, I want you to get this scene. Let the movie run in your mind right here. Jesus has been beaten. There's a purple rag around his bloodied shoulders and back. There's a crown of thorns upon his head. Matthew tells us that he had some kind of a reed, a, a slender stick in his hand as a mocking royal scepter. And Pilate is going to present now this beaten, bloodied figure before the crowd. Verse 5, then Pilate came out, excuse me, then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Crowd, look at him. Hasn't he suffered enough? Haven't I punished him enough? You know he's innocent. Can anyone among you, crowd, lay any sin to his charge? Look at him in his majesty, in his dignity. There's something in his eyes that's yet divine. Look at this man. Hasn't he suffered enough? Pilate hoped to awaken pity within the people. And if you'll forgive me just a little bit of imagination here, in my mind, For a moment, the crowd is stunned. For a moment, the crowd looks in awe at this man. He's not weeping. He's not trembling. He stands in strength and dignity and majesty, absolutely committed to fulfilling the call God has placed on his life, His food is to do the will of God and he will drink the cup that has been offered to him. The crowd is stunned at least for a moment. Now Pilate wanted the crowd to pity Jesus. He thought if I humiliate Jesus, if if I make him seem less than he really is, if I can arouse some sympathy from the crowd, I can save this guy. Can I just draw an analogy right here? Make a little point of application. There are people today who do a very similar thing with Jesus Christ. They hope 
that by bringing him down a few notches, that he will be more acceptable to people. And so he's not really God. He's just a great prophet. You you, you see, if Jesus is going to be relevant to a modern, progressive, scientific age, we just got to admit Jesus was wrong about some things. There are people who say that. I hope you don't read them, but I do. Maybe I read them so that you don't have to. Oh, yeah, you know, Jesus seemed to believe in Adam and Eve, but we all know that Adam and Eve weren't real people. So Jesus was just wrong on that thing. We just got to accept that Jesus was wrong about that and we're okay. Do you see what they're trying to, they're saying, if we bring Jesus down a little bit, then you'll feel sorry, you'll, you'll, you'll like him then. That's what Pilate was trying to do. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't need to do that for our Savior. We can let him stand in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, We say it in a way that Pilate didn't mean it. We say it, look at there in verse 5, behold the man. Pilate did it so that people would feel sorry for it. We say, behold the man and see this man who's unlike any man who's ever walked the earth. See this man who's absolutely, beyond question, the most pivotal figure in all of human history. There is no person who has ever impacted the world like Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody. We invite, look at this man, behold the man, and you'll be drawn to him. Behold the man, look at what he says, look at what he did. You behold him, and you will be drawn to him. We say it as well, we just say it in a different way than Pilate did. Now, in in the way I picture it, when Pilate brings forth this dramatic scene, the crowd is stunned. They're shocked. They, they, They see it, and it hits them. But look at what happens now in verse 6. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him? I find no fault in him. Notice, friends, please, that the cry, crucify him, crucify him, that came After Pilate invited them to behold the man, it didn't come from the crowd, it came from the religious leaders. It didn't come from that stunned crowd that had a lump in their throat as they looked at this man of great majesty standing before them. No, it was, verse 6 says, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they screamed, Crucify him, crucify him. And the sense in the original language is that they kept screaming it. They just kept shouting it. Pilate responds, look at his response in verse 6. You take and crucify him. You're so dedicated to his death, then you do it. Now Pilate was mocking them when he said it. He knew they did not have the legal power to do it. But it's if Pilate said, well, you're so concerned about it, then do it yourself. If you want to entrust judgment to me, then that's another thing altogether. Going on now, verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Well, do you see the scene in your mind now? Pilate presents Jesus. Behold the man, 
The crowd feels pity. The religious leader starts screaming again and again, crucify him, crucify him. What's the response of Pilate? Pilate says, well, you crucify him. It's your business. If you're so into this, you do it. The Jewish leaders answer back, no, 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 no. He needs to die because according to our law, he calls himself the son of God. This made a chill run up the spine of Pontius Pilate. I don't know if Pilate was a superstitious man. I don't know if he bought in to the Roman and Greek legends of the gods walking among men. But when Pilate heard that, it made him afraid. Look at the phrasing there in verse 8. It says, he was the more afraid. That same phrase is sometimes translated in the New Testament. They were exceedingly afraid. Pilate was terrified at the thought. This man, Pilate said, I knew there was something different about this guy. I have stood in judgment of dozens of weird criminals who claim to be kings and started to try revolutions. I've seen that before. I've sent dozens of men like that to the cross. This guy's not one of them. This guy's unlike any man that I've ever looked into his eyes. There's a peace. There's a calm. There's a strength. There's a dignity about this man. There's something different. So when he hears the words, oh yeah, he calls himself the son of God. Pilate says, that explains it. Plus, plus, somewhere in this narrative, we don't know exactly where it plugs into the Gospel of John, Pilate gets a message from his wife. His wife sends him a message. I had a dream, and this dream terrified me. I'm telling you, have nothing to do with that just man who's before you. All of it put together, Pilate realizes This man is not just another crazy criminal before me. And he was the more afraid. So what does he do? Verse 9, he gets Jesus together and he looks at Jesus and goes, tell me, where are you from? Remarkably, Jesus didn't answer. Did you notice that there at the end of verse 11? It says, but Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate wanted Jesus to defend himself. Give me a reason. I know you're different. I know you're innocent. Two or three times before the crowd, I've already said you're innocent. I've whipped you within an inch of your life. I don't know how you're standing before me. I don't know how you remain this dignified calm. I don't get it. Where are you from? There's something different about you. Jesus didn't answer. Now, I think there's two reasons. One, Jesus needed to fulfill the verse that simply said, That as a sheep before its shears is silent, so Jesus would be silent before those who sent him to the cross. That's in Isaiah chapter 53, and I paraphrase that prophecy, but that's the idea behind it. There's a second reason at work, though. Jesus had already clearly told Pilate where he was from. He said that he was a king of a kingdom that's not of this world. That's in John chapter 18, verse 36. I already told you where I'm from, Pilate. Do you think my answer's going to change? I told you I'm a king of a kingdom that's not of this world. I told you that I don't belong to this world. Your question's been asked and answered. I'm not going to give you a different answer now. Going on now, verse 10. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? 
Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate's angry. Matter of fact, it's emphatic in the original language. Verse 10, are you not speaking to me? Mister, don't you get it? I'm the Roman governor. I'm the guy who sends people to the cross. I have the power of life and death. I have your life in my hand. Pilate could not believe it, that Jesus would not do what everybody else who ever stood before Pilate in those circumstances do. What would other people do? They'd get down on their knees and beg for their life. Please, please, Pilate, I'll tell you what, where am I from? I'll give you whatever answer you want. They would think of a way, they'd get clever, they'd get inventive. Listen, when you've got a death sentence on your head, you can get pretty clever. You can invent a lot of answers. Pilate saw it before. He saw many men beg for their lives. Not this time. And Pilate's amazed at this fact. And so he says there in verse 11, do you not know that I have power? Pilate was amazed that Jesus was not intimidated by the power of the Roman government. There you are, I've got the power to condemn and crucify you. But you see, in Pilate's understanding of power, Pilate felt that he held the power position and he just, geez, can't you see this? Don't you get, I'm in control here? I have the power? Now friends, there's something so massively ironic here. Pilate thought that he had power, but you know what he had the power to do? He had the power to do something wrong. He had the power to send an innocent man to his death. Oh, big power there. You got the power to do unspeakable evil. Congratulations. What I want to know, Pontius Pilate, is do you have the power to do what's right? Do do you have the power to do what's right on a human level of justice? Forget about the divine level of justice. Pilate had no power to do what was right. And friends, can we not see a little bit of ourself in Pontius Pilate right there? You're the successful person. You got it all together. You feel like, man, I'm in control. I got it together there. You feel like you got the power to do a lot of things. Okay, you're Mr. Man or Woman of Power. Here you go. Stop sinning. Show me how powerful you are. We pretty realize that our power runs out really quick. We got the power to do a lot of wicked things and some good things. I'm not saying we have the power to do nothing good. But when it comes down in that critical moment to do what's right, many of us do not have the power just as Pilate did not have it. You see, what Pilate ended up having was the power to do what the crowd wanted him to do. Oh, I'm in control. I got the power to do what the crowd wants me to do. Yeah, that's a lot of power right there. I want to know, do you got the power to stand against the crowd? Do you got the power to do what's right even though you'll pay a price for it? That's power that Pilate didn't have. So Jesus reminds him, saying, verse 11, 
You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. You see, Jesus answers explaining the true nature of power to Pilate. In the thinking of the Roman governor, Rome had the power, but really God held the power. Whatever power Pilate had, it was given to him by God. Now continuing on, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Something about what Jesus said to Pilate about the others, the one who delivered me to you has the greater guilt. By the way, it's a little bit controversial. There's a little bit of dispute. I believe that the one who delivered Jesus to, I think Jesus had Judas in mind. He has the greater guilt, Pilate. He didn't say Pilate had no guilt, but he said Judas has a greater guilt. And something about what Jesus said with that, it made Pilate all the more determined, I got to let this guy go free. He understands this. He sees the situation. He sees what I don't see. I have to release him. Then the religious leaders laid down their trump card. You know how it is when you're in an argument with somebody and they got a trump card against you? And they hold it until the end. And then man, just when you feel like the argument's going your way and you got it, they pull it out. Boom. What are you going to do about that? That's exactly what it's like right here. The religious leaders, they look at each other and they go, man, this is going bad. He's going to release them. We got to do something about this. Okay, lay it out before him. Here's what they lay out. Notice, it's right there in verse 12. If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Now, by some accounts, Pontius Pilate was an unremarkable man who only held his position because he was married to the granddaughter of the Roman emperor Tiberius. If that's the case, then all the more he realized the only reason I have any kind of job or status or position is because I'm in the good graces of the emperor. I can't do anything to compromise this. By the way, history tells us that Tiberius, the emperor at this time, was a paranoid, really strange man who would murder people around him if, they, if he suspected them of the least bit of treason. Pilate goes, nope, that's it. If you guys are going to rat on me to Caesar and say I've been disloyal to him, that's the end of the game. So he's going to go to the judgment seat. Verse 13, he brought Jesus out and sat him down in the judgment seat. My friendship with Caesar is so important to me that I'm going to send Jesus to the cross. I'm going to reject Jesus because I want to be friends with Caesar. Pilate was not the first man to reject Jesus Because friendships in this age were more important to him. Isn't that a familiar story? Look, Jesus, you're pretty cool and all that. I get it. But my friendship with so-and-so. The way it worked with Pilate is the way it often works with us as well. Do you think Caesar was Pilate's friend? Get out of here. Pilate didn't care about Caesar. Caesar didn't care about Pilate. Pontius Pilate, man, he's a flunky. I sent him out to Judea to get rid of him. He's not my friend. And yet Pilate will risk it all, will lose it all 
because he sacrificed Jesus for the sake of friendship with a guy who didn't even like him. The story has been written many times. Verse 14. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified, so they took Jesus and led him away. When Pilate said those words in verse 14, Behold your king, Pilate sat on his judgment seat. This is where he would pronounce the formal judgment against the prisoner. He's sitting on his judgment seat. He has Jesus brought out to the crowd again. Behold your king, you miserable Jews. This is the best kind of king you can come with. Look at him. Here he is, your champion, your leader. And look at what the crowd reacts with. The crowd saw Jesus in all of his misery, yet in all of his dignity, and they responded by screaming, away with him, away with him, crucify him. So Pilate delivered him to be crucified. Friends, next week we talk about the actual crucifixion of Jesus. Can I simply ask you to take even just a few moments out before next Sunday and pray and ask God to prepare your heart for this passage of scripture that we look at next week. But I want you to notice, and we'll look at this in conclusion, look at what the crowd shouted out. They shouted out two things. And this is humanity's response to God. Verse 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Now there are times when people are angry enough or, or set enough against God, they're so set in their idolatry that they wish God dead. There are times when that's the case. I don't doubt it at all. The more common human response to God, to Jesus of Nazareth, are the first two things that they said. Away with him. Away with him. Now they meant away to the cross, but just think of those words. God, get away from me. God, give me some distance between you and me. God, would you get off my back? I pray that if any of you in either a small or a great way have been trying to distance yourself from God, away with him, away with him, Jesus get away, Jesus put some distance between you and I, can you just allow a little sorrow to come in your heart right now and just say, I am so sorry, God. I am so sorry. No, Jesus, I never want to say away with him. I want to say, Jesus, come closer. Jesus, I need you closer. As I behold the man, I want more of him than ever before. If the crowd says away with him, away with him, 
Get, get Jesus out of our culture. Get him out of our thinking. Get him out of our system. Get, get him out of our government. Get him out, just get Jesus away with him. If that's going to be the attitude of the culture, then all the more so the attitude of God's people is, Jesus, come close to us. We believe you have, Lord God. I pray that as your Holy Spirit speaks to people right now about ways that they have said, away with him, away with him. That Jesus, uh, you allow that appropriate sorrow to arise in a heart. And that people just say, God, I'm so sorry. And instead, Jesus, I say, Jesus, come close. Jesus, come close. I need you closer to me than ever before. Do it, Lord. Do it in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.